Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer as well. And we continue this morning. We're taking the summer to talk about some crucial spiritual habits because we're coming out of a time of such incredible disruption over the past 18 months. And one of the byproducts of that is that our daily and weekly, you know, our life rhythms and routines have been significantly affected. And that is significant because it is the monotony of our daily lives that becomes the crucible of our spiritual formation. That's a, fr- that's a phrase that I've borrowed, but that I just have been running around in my head a bunch over the last number of weeks. It is the monotony of our daily lives that becomes the crucible of our spiritual formation. Annie Dillard wrote this. She said, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. What we do at this hour and that one is what we're doing. To share some Warren, who wrote a wonderful little book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary, and I just quoted her about the monotony of our daily lives. She put it this way. She said, we don't wake up daily and form a way of being in the world from scratch. We don't think our way through every action of the day. We move in patterns that we have set over time day by day. These habits and these practices, they shape our loves, our desires, and ultimately who we are and what we worship. And so we need a net for catching days to, again, borrow from... Andy Dillard. We need a rule of life. We need a set of disciplines and habits, crucial spiritual habits that we build our days and thus our lives around. And that's what we're trying to do this summer as we get ready for fall to kick back fall. Fall is like fall in Florida is what? September, I mean, you know, like February. And so when we get ready for the school to begin again, so, because when everything starts to reset, I think all of us are looking forward to School starting is like, okay, it's, we're kind of finally back to normal, at least that, that's what I think. And as we're, as we're headed towards that, we want to talk about these things we might put in practice in our lives. Now, we're starting with the low-hanging fruit. By that, I mean last week we talked about Bible reading. And Jeremy Kemp, great. It was so fun to have him here. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm so grateful for him uh, being here with us last week to talk about that. This week we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about prayer. And you think, gosh, a sermon on prayer, just what I need. So let me say this, just, if you, if you, just to encourage you, um, I would tell you that prayerlessness is probably the, um, the besetting sin of my life. I think I've said that before, uh, but lots of you pray for me. And if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. And so let me just say this, I've, I've talked about prayer over the years many times, but in preparing this sermon, something felt different to me. 
it felt like I'd always talked about this theoretically, but something's starting to change in me that maybe because you're praying for me, I'm becoming a person of prayer. So if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. Okay? If you keep at it. And so I hope, I hope that's what will be the case, that we will become people of prayer. Richard, uh, Richard Foster, in Celebration of Discipline, he wrote this. He said, all who have walked with God, this is in your, this is in your outline, all who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. For those explorers in the frontiers of faith, prayer was no little habit tacked on to the periphery of their lives. It was their lives. It was the most serious work of their most productive years. So here's my question to us this morning. Is prayer part of your productivity suite? You have a productivity suite, right? All the apps and things that you use on your computer and your phone and so forth. Is prayer part of your productivity suite? Is it the main business of your day? Or is it something just tacked on to the periphery? Martin Luther famously said, I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours of the day in prayer. Is that the way you think about your life as well? And so let's come to this text and let's talk about prayer. And we're going to see from this text a number of things. We're going to see the hiddenness of it or why it's so hard. We're also going to see the substance of it, which is the main part of what Jesus teaches us here. And then also, thirdly, Jesus gives us the motivation for it. So if we're going to be people of prayer who make prayer the main business of our lives, we need to understand these three things, the hiddenness of it and the substance of it and the motivation for it. And that's what we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 6. But before we do, would you just pray with me as we get ready to preach about prayer? So, Father... We are not here because we are good, but because we are yours. And so may your spirit come now and make these dry bones live as we hear from your word. Forgive the preacher his sins, for they are many. And we would see Jesus in him only. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And so first, the hiddenness of prayer. Jesus first tells us to pray in secret. So let's read it again. Verses 5 and 6, if you look there with me. In the text, it says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room. You might have a translation that says, Into your closet, shut the door, and pray to your Father who sees in secret, and he will reward you. Now, this is what makes prayer so hard. The text says that prayer is a test, maybe the test. I'm not sure which whether it's A or V there, but one or the other, it's a test, maybe the test of the sincerity of your faith. If you want to measure the strength of your faith, look at how you pray. This is what Jesus says. Jesus here mentions the hypocrites. Do you see that in verse 5? They are the religious leaders. That's who he's talking about. And these are the people who do their religious stuff to be seen by others. The word hypocrite there refers to a stage actor. So someone who is playing a part And so for these people that Jesus is describing here, their religion was just a role. It wasn't real. They were merely playing dress-up. They were wearing masks that made them look the part of the role they were playing, no matter what they looked like on the inside. Now, what about you, see? Is Christianity just a role that you're playing because you grew up in a Christian home, because that's the expectation upon you, culturally, socially, whatever it might be, or is it real? Is it just a role or is it real? And if you really want to answer that question, Jesus says, look at how you pray. 
And what we learn here is that pride and prayer are incompatible realities. And pride and Christianity are incompatible as well, which is why prayer is such a good test of whether you're a Christian or whether you're just playing the part of a religious person. These hypocrites here that Jesus described, their praying was really just religious exhibitionism. They would dress, uh, in other parts of the Gospels we learn, they would dress in such a way to draw attention to themselves. They were the guys who lugged huge, remember those old family Bibles people used to have that late, that like when the pastor would come over, he'd set it out on the table to make sure he knew, right? These big, huge Bibles that would sit in the family room. They would, they would, they, these guys would lug those things around wherever they went so that people knew that they were serious about these things. And when they would do charity, this is the, the truth, this is what the Bible says. They would go into the marketplace to do charity where the crowds were gathered and they would bring people with them that would blow trumpets to signal their arrival. And then once everybody had turned around and was paying attention to them, then they would give the handouts to the poor. And it says in verse two of Matthew six, they did this that they may be praised by others. It was all about them. Their goal was to display their goodness and to be made much of for all they're doing for God. And that is just religion. But it is not Christianity. And it was not prayer. And that's Jesus' point. So when you think of prayer, you think, what, what do you think? When we say prayer, what do you think? Immediately, what comes to mind? You think heads bowed, you think kneeling, you think quiet, you think solitude. These are postures and environments of humility because prayer is an act of humility, which is why it is so central to the practice of Christianity. St. Augustine said this, he said, if you ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you the way is first, humility, and second, humility, and third, humility. And however often you should ask me, I would say the same, not because there are no other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not precede and accompany and follow every good work we do, if it is not set before us to look upon and beside us to lean upon and behind us to fence us in, pride will wrest from our hand any good deed we do while we are in the very act of taking pleasure in it. I, uh, I use prayer cards to keep track of the things I'm asking God to do. And so that's where, and hopefully we, we're going to be talking about that this fall and, and hopefully helping you do that as well. And so I have all of these prayer cards and I have things that I'm asking God for on all of these, you know, I have a system. But I want to say to you, prayer is not just getting through the list of things that we need. Before it is that, it is a posture for all of life. And I get overwhelmed by all the things that I'm praying for. Does that happen to you? I can get frozen by that sometimes. It's one of the things that I have to overcome in my daily prayers is there's just the volume of things that I need God to do in me. I can't even hardly ever get past the things I need God to do in me and then let alone in my family and the people that I love dearly and I just can get frozen in it. And so what I've learned is that I've got to simplify things and so every morning now I pray the same thing. Here's my prayer in the morning. Father, the power for today comes from you and not from me. And every afternoon before I leave the office to go home, I pray the same thing. God, you are necessary and I am not. I am not the Christ. And every night before I go to sleep, I pray the same thing. I pray, what do I have that I did not receive? And sometimes that's all I can muster in prayer are those phrases. But here's what I want to say, but that's enough. 
because it's about posturing yourself in humility. The way Jesus teaches us to pray conveys an important lesson about prayer itself. He says, you close the door and you pray in secret without anybody knowing you're doing it because that is what prayer is. Prayer is laying yourself aside and becoming attentive to God in the moments of your day. Let's not overcomplicate things as we talk about this this morning, right? It's that simple. The crucial habit of prayer that we're asking you to consider that we're talking about is just this. It is to intentionally stop whatever you're doing at certain moments of your day and turn your attention to what God is doing. Because we can get so wrapped up in what we're doing in our schedule, and our timeline, all of these kinds of things. We stop, we stop whatever we're doing to turn our attention to what God is doing. You put your phone down, you find a quiet spot, you settle yourself in, you center yourself, you listen for his voice. Let me say it another way. Prayer is the habit of living all of your life towards God in strategic moment-by-moment you know, practices of doing just that. Now, let me say it this way. If you could illustrate your life by simply drawing an arrow, if you would just draw an arrow, put it like a stick figure on a page, and you draw an arrow from that stick figure, which direction would the arrow be pointing? Would it be pointing back in towards yourself? Is your life aimed at your own wants and desires? You know, most fundamentally, this is what Martin Luther described as sin. The heart turned in on itself, so the arrow would just point right back to you. Or would the arrow point away from you towards others? Is your life aimed, like the hypocrites here, at getting praise from others? Is that really the whole direction of your life is just managing your self-image, or excuse me, managing the image that other people have about you and trying to get praise and acclamation from them? Or would your arrow be pointed up? Would it be pointed up toward God? Do you live for yourself, towards yourself, or for others, towards others, or towards God. In Romans 14, Paul wrote, for none of us lives for ourselves alone, we live for the Lord. Prayer is the habit of living toward God, which is why the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Because we're never done with the work of redirecting the momentum of our lives from inward or outward to upward. Does that make sense? This is why he says, do this all the time in everything you're doing. So the days can be so full of our doing that we can quickly forget that our doing is not what matters most. The Bible says, unless the Lord builds, we build in vain. And so we do not rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, as the psalmist says. Prayer is the habit that cultivates a slow, quiet life of waiting on God, intentionally disrupting the day to step away, get our minds out of our busyness, out of our own mess, and onto God's promises, to turn our hearts away from the hope of our doing and learn instead to live life by asking. You can live life by doing, you can live life by asking. And we ask for what we cannot accomplish on our own. It's an act of profound humility, which is why it's done, why it's done in the closet, which is why it's done in secret, not on street corners or social media platforms. The shape of our prayers should mirror the state of our heart. As we pray. And so we see the hiddenness of it. Second, that's not the only thing that Jesus gives to us here. He also, he also is very, um, it's very important because he gives us the substance of prayer as well. Jesus tells us to pray, the kingdom come. And this is really the Lord's prayer section of this text. Uh, and, and so I'm summarizing all that Jesus says there with that, with that, one, uh, with that one prayer that he tells us to pray. 
And so the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew 6 is found also in Luke chapter 11. There, it's interesting, in Luke 11, it's, uh, Jesus teaches them this because the disciples first ask the question. They say, Lord, teach us to pray, and then he gives them the Lord's Prayer in response to their asking that. And so Jesus, when he responds to them there in Luke 11, though, he did not tell them what to do. He told them what to say. Think about that. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus did not tell them what to do. He merely told them what to say. He said, when you pray, say this, which is the same thing that he does here. Pray then like this. He did not give them a method. He gave them words, which means that good praying is a matter of having the right substance in your prayers. That's the most important thing. He didn't give them a method. He gave them a theology. And so let's look at the Lord's Prayer because in it we find the theology that's necessary to develop the habit of prayer. And as I said, I really want to focus on the one phrase, verse 10. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that is the, the physical center and the heart of the prayer. Kingdom come, your kingdom come. Jesus says, pray the kingdom come. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus' gospel was the good news that the kingdom of heaven was at hand in his work and in his very person. In Jesus, heaven came into the world, and this prayer that he tells us to pray, it acknowledges this. But at the same time, it also acknowledges that there's still more to come. And so we live our lives in a Venn diagram, and I think we have a slide that we're going to show here. There we go. I shouldn't have even prompted it. I should have known that they would be on it up there. We live in a Venn diagram where we experience the tension of living between the present reality as it is and also the future promises of a greater, more full reality that's still coming. We stand in between the middle of those two things. Do you see that? Kingdom theology is Venn diagram theology. We stand in the middle between the world as it is and the world as it is meant to be and we ask God to bring heaven to earth. That is what prayer is. Not just in the future, but to say, God, do these things now. And so the Lord's Prayer, one writer put it this way, is an anti-Gnostic prayer. And Gnosticism was just the ancient heresy in Christianity that we can't seem to get rid of. Gnosticism taught that the goal was the separation of the physical from the, or separation of the spiritual from the physical. And so the whole, the whole goal was to leave the physical world behind. But I love the way Dallard Will, Will, Dallas Willard used to put it. He used to say that if, if becoming a Christian is just about having your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven when you die, why, don't, why wait? Just why don't you go on? Why wait? Just go now. But the prayer here teaches us that our hope is not just to go there. Our work is actually to bring there here. That that's what Jesus intends. And it's why he tells us to pray towards the work that he's given us. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle calls Christians citizens of heaven. Now think about that. Philippi, he's writing to the Christians in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. And so most of the residents there in Philippi were citizens of Rome. And they knew that their purpose was to extend the influence of Rome around the world. So the purpose of a Roman colony was to bring the culture of Rome to the city of Philippi. Our purpose as citizens of heaven is to bring the culture of heaven down to the earth. Your kingdom come, what's the next phrase? Your will be done. 
to see God's will done here the way it is already being done there. To be people ourselves who say, may your will be done. If you pray that, it means first, may I be a person in whom your will is done in the exact same way that it is now done in heaven. And that means praying that way, praying the kingdom come, praying God's will being done means a life of faith and love. The two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And so kingdom theology, the kingdom theology of the Lord's Prayer is sandwiched between prayers of faith and love. Do you see that in the, in the, in the Lord's Prayer? So look just before. To pray your kingdom come means to also pray how would be your name, verse 9. And then look after. To pray your kingdom come means to pray forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Prayers of faith and love. Our life moving out in faith to God and as a consequence of that in love towards other people. So if we define sin the way the Bible does as falling short of glorifying God, making, of failing to make his glory our happiness and joy and peace, failing to reflect his glory the way we are meant to as image bearers, then we pray, Lord, may that not be so. Instead, may it be that I am a person who makes your name great. Would you work to make your name great? Would you make work to make yourself famous? Would you make work to, to bring glory to yourself, not to me, not to my projects? That's what, not, not what life is about. Life, whatever I'm doing, is about making you great and making you known in all the world. But then he also tells us to turn around and to be thinking about one another. And as a consequence, when the, you know, the kingdom of God is here, and do you know how we know the kingdom of God is here? Jesus used the, the description of the lion laying down with the lamb. I'm sorry, Jesus didn't use that. Isaiah used that. He said, when the new creation comes, the lion will lay down alongside with the lamb, which, of course, that doesn't normally happen in the world, does it? What usually happens when a lion and a lamb get together? The opposite of that, the lamb lays down in the clutches of the lion who eats him. And yet Jesus says, something's going to come. There's going to be a new creation where peace And reconciliation will be so profound that the lion and the lamb will lay down as friends next to one another. And you want to know, every time someone who believes in Jesus turns to somebody else who is hurt, offended, you know, or or really made things hard for them and offers forgiveness and reconciliation, the kingdom of God comes to the earth. And that's how we're to pray. We're to pray prayers of faith and love For the sake of God's kingdom coming, that's the substance. And when we're living that kind of life, when you're living a life that is aimed at the glory of God in all things, and when you're living a life where you're bearing the cross of being forgiven and forgiving other people and living with the goal of reconciliation with others, when you're living that kind of life, prayer will come naturally. You'll know you have to pray because you'll be so overwhelmed by life otherwise. But lastly, so we see the hiddenness of prayer and the substance of prayer, but... Let's not forget the motivation of prayer. It might be the most important part of this text. Jesus tells us to pray, our Father. And I chose the Matthew passage rather than Luke because of that section there in verses 7 and uh, and 8 and 9, just before the Lord's Prayer. It's unique to Matthew's gospel. It's very helpful, very significant because Jesus significant. Jesus contrasts the way of Gentiles, the way they pray, the way the pagans pray, the way that people that don't know God pray, and the way that Christians are supposed to pray, the way that people do, who do know God. See, the way people who don't know God and the way people who do know God pray is very, very different. There's a pagan way to pray, and there's a Christian way to pray. And the reason that prayer is so hard for so many of us is because we're still praying like pagans instead of praying like Christians. 
So he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. You see that verse 7? As the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So pray then like this, our Father. Now there are two very different ways to approach God that lead to two very different kinds of praying. So the Gentiles, the pagans, the people who don't know God personally, they don't have any gospel footing. And so at the bottom, they are moralistic, whether religiously or irreligiously. It's the same thing, by the way. And it shows up in a lot of areas of their life, but it shows up in the two ways, in their, in their praying, in two ways. It says here that the first thing, the first wrong move they make is they heap up empty phrases. Do you see that word? It's, it's actually one word in the Greek. They heap up empty phrases. They they pray repeating the same things over and over again. Now, that in itself is not a bad thing. It actually can be a big help. We're going to talk about that in the days to come. But these kinds of prayers, Jesus is describing something that's become mechanical, just words with no heart, words with no emotional or relational connection to God in them, like an incantation, as if, as if it's magic. Just saying the right words will affect the power that I'm looking for. That's what Jesus is condemning here. He says they heap up empty phrases, but then he also says the second wrong move they make is they pray with many words. They talk too much. Short prayers are the best prayers. Can I get an amen? Yeah, especially when the pastors pray, right? Short prayers. But here he's describing that um, they're, they're nervous about their relationship with God. And when you're nervous, what, what, what's one of the things you do when you're nervous? You talk too much. And so it says they think that they're heard for their many words. In other words, they, they're, they're prevailing theology. They have no gospel footing. Their prevailing theology is you've got to do it right. You have to say it right. You've got to say the right words. And you've got to say them over and over again. And you have to show lots of devotion and passion. And, that, and that's what really matters. I've told the story. Uh, but it's worth repeating, I think, that the first time I went, I spent some time in India years ago, and the first time I went to India, um, of course, you're jet-lagged when you get there, and so it's 1.30 in the morning, and you're wide awake, and so you're just begging God for the sun to come over the horizon uh, by about 4 or 5 in the morning, and so as the sun's coming up, uh, we're staying in this hotel, and I, outside, we begin to hear this really, like, loud yelling, chanting, screaming noises and I was a little freaked out by the guy I was with. He said, do you know what, you know what that is? I said, no. He's like, come with me. We're going to go. So we go out of the hotel and go. And every neighborhood has a little temple that is the, like the neighborhood's temple. And we walked out to the temple of the particular neighborhood we were staying in. And the people are gathered there before the sun has come up. And they're yelling and they're screaming and they're making all of this noise. And, and I'm like, what is going on? And he said, they're waking the gods up. Because that's what they believed they had to do. You have to make the noise. You have, to, you have to like shout and scream and cut yourself and do things so that the God will wake up and pay attention to you because he sees your devotion and your piety. And that is exactly what these people are doing here. Jesus described them. He said, you know, these are people who think that they have to wake God up so that he'll hear their prayers. Do you pray like that? And this is why so many people get tied in knots. In prayer, they get tied in knots about whether they're doing it right or not. And there's no freedom. And, and, and the result is you can't be real. You've got to do it right. You've got to say it right. And that becomes the most important thing. And so Jesus is exposing the way prayer can become mechanical and businesslike. It can become a business deal. You might say you're trusting in Christ, but then in your praying, you default back into moralism. And the two indicators of that are if your prayers are mechanical and impersonal, if you're just saying the right things, but you don't feel it, 
there's no heart in it, or if you're self-conscious and full of anxiety about whether you're doing it right, and you just can't get away from that sense of, I don't know, you know, if this is okay. But contrast that with just the simplicity of what Jesus says. Then there's the Christian way to pray, and the Christian way to pray, it's just the opposite. It's so simple. Jesus said, don't pray like that. Pray like this, Father. In other words, it assumes a certain relationship with God. It's not, it's not magic, right? It's not incantations. It's not a business transaction where you're trying to do it right so that the other person will give you what you need. It's a relationship. It assumes a certain relationship with God. It's the freedom to be childlike, to say as much or as little as you need to, or just to be quiet and listen, to bring the real stuff to God and not just the right stuff. I mean, think about how do your kids ask for things? What kind of things do kids ask for? What does no mean to a child? I just haven't figured out how to ask the right way yet, right? I'm going to wear down. Kids act this way because they have a mom and dad whose whole existence in life is to love them and to delight to fill their lives with good things. Kids know this, but do you know that you have a father in heaven who's like that? See, the issue here is this. Why does God hear our prayers? On what basis? Is it because of what we do? And if so, then we have to do it right. But that's moralism. That's paganism. Or is it because of who he is? Is it our performance or, it is, or is it his grace? I mean, which do you believe is true of God? Anne Lamott used to say that most people think of God as a high school principal in a gray suit who never seems to remember your name but is always leafing unhappily through your files. And it's a great analogy, I think of the way a lot of people, but I think that's right on. But is that what you think of God? Or do you know him as a father who reigns in heaven, whose name is hallowed and good and who loves you deeply and delights to do you good? Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly in a chapter brilliantly, brilliantly titled, Our Lawless Hearts, His Lavish Heart. He put it like this. He said, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can either live for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it. Prayer mirrors the gospel. What you really believe about God and his grace and forgiveness, it shows up in your praying or lack thereof. I don't know if you guys know this story, but years ago, I, I have done some traveling uh, and teaching on prayer in, uh, for Bob Allums and the ministry that he leads with See Jesus. And so uh, Tim Keller's church in New York City called years ago and asked for somebody to come and do a praying life conference. And they thought it would be a good, good idea for me to go. Now, if you know anything, you know, like Tim Keller is one of my heroes. His church's name Redeemer, our church's name Redeemer. Hello, okay, you with me? So I was being sent up there to talk to them. I was scared to death, and I was scared because I knew what I had to say to them. And so here's how I started the prayer seminar. Now, Tim Keller was not in the room. I don't know that I would have had the courage to do this had he been. But here was my opening line to them. I, I said, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so grateful for your church. I learned the gospel from your ministry, but I'm here to tell you, you don't believe it as deeply as you think you do because you don't pray. The room was kind of like that when I said that. <laughs> it went pretty good from there, but I was so nervous. It was good. Now I'm using the word gospel, what's that mean? It refers to the good news of Jesus. Paul put, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, put what Jesus says here about prayer into the context of what he has done to make it possible. Put what Jesus says here into the context of what he's done. 
Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he is the eternal beloved of the Father, God's one and only Son. C.S. Lewis summarized the gospel well. He said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And he did it by living a life of perfect obedience as an act of love for the Father and by dying on the cross for our sins. And so the agony of the cross was not the physical stuff. It was the rupture of the relationship between the Father and Son. In some mysterious way, as Jesus hung upon the cross, becoming our sin, Jesus became fatherless and endured the wrath and hell our sins deserved. But the Father also became sonless. So Jürgen Moltmann, he wrote this. He said, the Son suffers the dying, the Father suffers the death of the Son. The grief of the Father here is just as important as the death of the Son. The fatherlessness of the Son is matched by the sonlessness of the Father. You see on the cross, Jesus lost the privilege and the status and the joy of being God's Son so that we could have it as a gift of his grace. And after his resurrection, he looked at his disciples and he said this, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God, meaning that in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus made it possible for you and me to share the same father-child relationship that God has with him from all eternity. If you put your faith in Jesus, then you have the exact same standing with God that he does. You have the exact same access to God that he does. You have the exact same intimacy with God that he does. And so you can come boldly, not nervous, just as you are, not worried about being right, just being real. And that's, the, and that's the key that unlocks prayer. From experience, I can tell you. And that's it. See, I'm tempted to talk about the how of prayer. I'm going to do a podcast later in the week, so tune in for that. But the reality is, what we've said here is enough. If we solve this problem, if we solve the problem of correcting our wrong believing with right believing, then the rest will take care of itself, which is why it's enough to stop here. Nietzsche said this, he said, if you have the right why, you can bear almost any how. And here's our why. In the words of an old hymn, here's our why. Ye who see the Father's grace beaming in the Savior's face. Isn't that a great line? Do you see the Father's grace beaming in the Savior's face? If that's your why, you'll endure any how. Ye who see the Father's grace beaming in the Savior's face. Morning souls, dry up your tears, banish all your guilt and fears, see your guilt and curse removed, canceled by his redeeming love. Amen? Pray with me then as we close this morning. So Father, those things ring true in our hearts, and yet not as true as they should. We have a faint sense because of the dullness that sin uh, continues to, to wreak upon our hearts of the truth of all that we've said, and yet we pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and make these things real to our hearts in a way that they aren't currently. Because we don't want to be those that are described in the, in the Bible as hearing but not hearing, as seeing but not perceiving, whose, whose dullness just gets the best of them, and yet we walk away not moved, not shaken, by the reality of, of your holiness and our sin, but by the reality of your great redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ. And so would you come and work, Holy Spirit, to 
Convince us of the truth of the Father's love. Make much of Jesus in our hearts. And I pray that the result would be that we would experience a new freedom to come boldly before the Father. Not with just the right stuff, but whatever the real stuff is. So I'm going to ask you to do just that as we just get ready to close the end of the service. Just what is, what's the one thing that's on your, on your heart? What's the one thing in your life? When I say the real stuff, what's really going on? What's the one thing that just bubbles up to the surface? Why don't you just talk to, talk to God about it? Maybe, this, maybe you haven't had time all week. Let's take 30 seconds just to talk to God about it for a minute. Don't worry about doing it right. Just what's the real thing? It doesn't matter whether it's silly or seems small. Just talk to him about whatever's on your heart, whatever's right there. Thank you, Father, for the freedom (laughs) to be children and to ask like children do. Because your heart is greater than any parent, greater than any friend. And so we come to you now and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't remember the last time I sang that song in church, uh, but what a great truth. I want to read to you just a few words uh, from the Daniel Ortland book that I uh, quoted earlier. It says, There's an entire psychological substructure that, due to the fall, is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear stuffing, nervousness, scorekeeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety festering silliness that is not something we say or even think so much as we exhale. You can smell it on people, though some of us are good at hiding it. And if you trace the fountain of scurrying haste and all its various manifestations down to the root, you don't find childhood difficulties or Myers-Briggs diagnosis or Freudian impulses. You find gospel deficit. You find the lack of felt awareness of God's heart. All the worrying and dysfunction and resentment are the natural fruit of living in a mental universe of law. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest, wholeness, flourishing, shalom, that existential calm that for brief gospel sane moments settles over you and lets you step out of the storm of of workness. That is a beautiful paragraph. And I'm praying for gospel sane moments. He's absolutely right that the root of our prayerlessness is gospel deficit, which is why I'm so glad God sends us into this week and every week with the words of this benediction. All that I'm about to say is true. It's a statement about God's love for us because of Jesus. But we say it, we state it also as a prayer that the Holy Spirit would make the love of God, the felt love of God in our hearts. And so receive these words of benediction and ask the Spirit to do just that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.